Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we'll be looking into a crucial yet overlooked aspect of financial planning, beneficiary designations. This is one of the ways an advisor can show they are really an advisor. It tells the clients you're on it, especially when onboarding a client during a client review. It's taking care of the details of a client's life. That's what's important. With us today is Chris Price, the Assistant Vice President of Advanced Annuity Sales at Lincoln Financial Group. He's going to break down this element of one's financial strategy that influences virtually everything a client owns. Welcome, Chris. Yes, thank you, Doug. I'm uh, really pleased to be here with you today. For those who don't know, can you tell us what a beneficiary designation is and why they're important? Sure. Simply stated, a beneficiary designation is a legally binding way to declare or name or designate, if you will, who will take ownership of something you own once you pass away. So they're fairly simple. Usually it's just a form and a signature, and they don't usually cost anything to do. But they don't apply to everything, but they can be used with common financial accounts such as IRAs, 401ks, annuities, and life insurance. And through a kissing cousin called an FBO or for the benefit account, the same concept is extended to securities accounts and bank accounts. So why is it important for financial professionals to review beneficiary designations with their clients? Well, if you don't, and if, well, first off, if you don't even fill one out and leave it blank, then a default takes over. And the default is set by the government and it may be federal and it may be state and different assets may go to different people depending on the various rules. And this may not be where people want things to go. The reason it's important to review these things is because goals and circumstances for clients change. Family dynamics change. People come into the family. People leave the family. People who undergo changes in their life where they can't manage assets where perhaps they could before or vice versa. So as goals and circumstances change, who you name and how you name them be a beneficiary can be affected by those changes. And these affect virtually everything a client owns, even if it's something that's governed under rules other than strict beneficiary designations. And we know this is an issue out there because we get a lot of calls on this. Uh, We're recording this in the fourth quarter. So why is it timely now? It's particularly timely now because a lot of clients are doing annual benefit enrollments right now. And a part of that is naming or confirming beneficiary designations, maybe for um, your group life insurance at work or your 401k plan, something like that. So as long as you're doing these and they're coming up on the screen when you're doing these elections, it's a good time to review whether what you've elected is what you really want, rather than just check the same box you keep checking off for the last several years without giving it any thought. I would also say, though, in a sense, it's always timely. Problems with these designations can be what we call potential or permanent. Their potential while the client is alive, because while the client is alive, a lot of these things are fairly easy to change and fix. But when the client dies, if there's a problem, that problem is usually permanent. 
But what if a client tells an advisor, you know, my will's up to date. Isn't that enough? I think it's important to understand the role of the will. The will acts as what I call a cleanup document. So some assets pass by what we call operation of law. So an example would be if I own a house with my spouse and it's jointly owned, well, if I die first, then my spouse automatically owns that house. And it doesn't matter what the will says. My spouse will own that house because of the way we jointly owned it. It's similar with beneficiary designations. I name somebody on that beneficiary designation and the asset will then pass to that beneficiary. Now, the will steps into play with assets that haven't passed in one of these other ways. That is, so a will kind of takes the assets that are left over and takes care of getting those passed to other heirs. And so it's also important to note, too, that with a will, if there's a conflict between a will and a beneficiary designation, that typically it's the beneficiary designation rules will trump or govern the will. But why not just name a client's estate to be the beneficiary of everything? Then all they need to do is keep their will up to date. Yeah, I think that's a great initial thought, but I have two problems with that. The first one is actually getting the will or amending the will can be expensive, requiring to go to a lawyer and pay legal fees and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have a will. I think most people should have one, but it's not something we want to be changing on a regular basis because of that cost. The second problem is that once the client dies, the probate process kicks in. And with that, that can be fairly expensive and so forth. So what happens with the probate process is that the client dies, they've named somebody to represent them after their passing. So they go down typically to a county courthouse with a death certificate, a copy of the will and their identification. And the court says, yes, you're the person who's named. And they give you some documents that say you're allowed to act. You take those documents and you go and change the title to assets that haven't passed automatically and name them the estate of the deceased person. The next thing you do is you advertise for creditors and you because you have to pay off creditors before anybody gets anything. And then once that's done, you change the title from the state to the heir. So you can see it would be a fairly onerous process to go through. And the, that process at first is time consuming. 18 months is kind of an average number, perhaps, that people might say from the time you advertise to wait for a potential creditor to show up and make a claim. Meanwhile, the assets are just sitting around um, and the beneficiaries aren't able to use them. It can also be expensive. States and counties, local jurisdictions charge fees for the ability to go through this process. Anywhere from 2% to 8% of the fair market value of all the assets in the estate might be charged as a fee. 5% is kind of a good round number ballpark to go on. So if we start adding assets to that probate estate by naming it to the estate or to the will, you're increasing those fees. The third problem is this is all public. Anybody can see everything that's going on in the estate process, what the assets are, who's getting what. And then some assets like IRAs may lose some of the more tax efficient methods that are available to beneficiaries to manage them, where the beneficiary, if it was left directly to the beneficiary, could have taken advantage of this. But by leaving it to the estate, some of those advantages are taken away. That's fantastic. Let's dig a little deeper. What are some of the misunderstood or overlooked aspects of beneficiary designations? 
Yes, I just mentioned some losses of tax options for beneficiaries. I would say in our role at Lincoln on our team working in the annuity area, perhaps the most common beneficiary we call is that someone died and they left their annuity to a trust. Now, there are certainly legitimate reasons to do this, but too often it is done without considering the consequences. So in this case, if it had gone directly to the beneficiary, they could have taken the gains and spread the taxes out over their lifetime. But by leaving it to the trust, that lifetime stretch, if you will, can be limited to five years. Easy to have fixed while the client was alive, but once the client passes away, that five-year rule is locked in. Also, there are differences between federal and state laws, and states can't override federal law. So I'll give you an example of a case we saw once. It was in the area of 401ks, which are federal programs, and they're ruled by federal law. And this is a case that we actually saw. The husband was getting married for the first time. The wife was getting married for the second time, and she had young kids. And they were raising the kids as if they were their own. The husband treated the kids as they were his kids. Sadly, the wife passed away, and she was named the beneficiary of the 401k plan. The husband never got around to changing that. Now, when the husband died, his will left everything to these children that he'd been raising. But under the 401k rules, this is what happens. First, they looked and they said, well, the beneficiary is the spouse and she was deceased. The next in line, according to federal law, are children. But to them, it's either natural born or adopted children, not stepchildren. The third were the parents and his parents were gone. Fourth in line were the siblings, his brothers and sisters. It was only after that that would have gone to his estate and been governed by the will and gone to the stepchildren. Because he had brothers and sisters alive, they walked away with a 401k plan instead of the stepchildren that he really wanted to have own this 401k. Another area that I'm, I'm constantly almost amused by, when I give talks about beneficiary designations, I'll ask for a show of hands on this question. How many people in this room, full financial professionals, have ever heard of what we call auto-revoke statutes? And not a single hand will go up. It's like this best kept secret in the beneficiary world. These are statutes that are effective in 26 states, but nobody has heard of them. And what they're really saying is that if somebody has gotten divorced and that divorced spouse is still named as a beneficiary, they'll kind of cross that name out and go to the next in line. But these statutes are not in every state. They apply to different assets across different states. So it's really kind of a crazy patchwork. And again, they don't apply to federal things like 401ks. Other areas I would say come to, I think, miscommunication within a family. A very common situation might be something like this. Two people are married. It's a second marriage but there are children from a first marriage. And I've seen this where the spouse who, who has the assets is getting married for the second time. And they say, well, I want everybody to get along. I want my kids and my new spouse to get along. But when I'm gone, I'm going to leave assets to take care of that second spouse. Then when she's gone, we'll take care of the children. They'll get their inheritance. Now the children are waiting around for the second spouse to pass away before they get their inheritance. Every time that spouse spends money, they look at it like that spouse is spending their inheritance. And if the goal was to have cordiality and, and familiarity between these parties, if anything, it's driving a wedge between them. 
So these things need to be discussed up front. I think it's important to bring children into these discussions. And by doing that, also the advisor, by involving the children in these discussions, is bringing value to those children. They're showing that we're concerned about them as well as simply the client whose assets that they're managing. By showing that value, then they improve the chances of retaining those clients down the road. So it's a win-win all around. Clients get better outcomes in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. The the advisor might retain the assets and the beneficiaries are having their thoughts and wishes brought into the, the equation. So Chris, how should a financial professional proceed? How can they nail this? I think number one is to create a process and stick to it. That process could be as simple as having a calendar reminder that pops up every so often, be it every second year or third year, to go back and just go through the entire process. Part of this then is to make sure that you always probe about the assets that are there, not just the ones that you manage but look for all the assets. Now, again, this could be a win for the advisor. Sometimes you you can gather those assets in. But ideally, in terms of running the beneficiaries, if that's all we were looking at, having all the assets in one place would obviously be a great thing to do, consolidate everything. But there are always a lot of reasons why clients don't want to do that or can't do that. And so that coordination becomes critical. That's why it's important to really look at all of the assets, not just the ones that you're looking at as a piece of it. It's also important to include what we call impact questions, closed-end and open-end questions. So a a closed-end question, something, you know, you don't think about just a very quick answer. What time is it? You know, oh, it's 1.17 in the afternoon. An open-ended question might be you can get a little more color, um, but you don't have to think about it too much. Like, what did you do over the weekend? An impact question is one where the client actually has to stop and think about the answer. And... This does a couple of things. It helps you build trust with that client. It helps you to understand their thought process. And it really charges the client to think a little bit more critically rather than just give off-the-cuff answers. A couple of examples might be things like, do you have any heirs who might not manage their finances responsibly? Can you tell me what people or organizations matter to you the most? Or what provisions have you made for those organizations or people? And are you satisfied with the provisions that you've made? Now, again, when viewing those beneficiary goals, you can broaden the conversation to how various assets are positioned to accomplish these goals. And that can in turn open the door to planning solutions opportunities. For instance, at Lincoln, we have opportunities where we can create income streams for family members. So maybe that's an important thing to make sure that somebody has a steady source of income rather than just give them an asset which they may spend their way through. For some people, they need uh, tax-efficient inheritance strategies for things like annuities. Some clients, beneficiaries, can be more or less tax-sensitive. And even amongst the siblings, some will be more or less tax-sensitive than others. So doing some customization rather than just blanket treating everybody equally or simply naming somebody without a little further planning can be very important as well. I would also say this, that Lincoln has an advanced sales team with experience and tenure in helping financial professionals in these areas. And we get into things even more complex, like working with structuring trusts and lowering taxes and so forth. I would encourage financial advisors to give us a call work with the advanced sales team. As I say, we've seen some of the the best practices across the country, and maybe we can bring some of that to bear to help their clients. This is a huge opportunity for advisors to add value to their clients and to get the help they may need. Lincoln's right there. Thanks for your help, and thanks for joining us, Chris. 
Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. To learn more about Lincoln Financial Group, please visit lincolnfinancial.com. Please follow us for timely updates on X, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, our engineer, Tori Miller, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.